Badger State Banner, 20 August 1896. William Sadler of Janesville says that he's recovering his eyesight after being blind for 12 years by taking the Knep cure. A local faith cure, believer, rubs his head and feet, and Sadler walks barefooted in the dewy grass each morning before sunrise. 28 May, 1896. Olga Assman, a young woman aged 20 years, attended a hypnotic exhibition the other night, and while laughing heartily at the antics of the subject under hypnotic control, was seized with a severe fit of coughing, which became hysterical, and continued almost without stopping. Unless the coughing can be stopped soon, the results will probably be fatal. Catching Sky. Robin was not his last name, but his first. He only gave himself his first name much later for reasons of some enterprise the peddler contrived. He has forgotten what his real last name was, if ever he knew it. The peddler had found him, he said, when the boy was barely seven, after an Indian massacre, huddling with a group of survivors in a burned-out church and the boy could remember almost nothing, not his last name, not his parents, not what had happened, or at least he would not tell it. In fact, he spoke very little for a long time. The peddler took the boy with him when he left the survivors and camped at the church, for they were mostly in shock themselves and showed no interest in the boy, nor any sympathy for him. Robin did chores for his keep, and the peddler found other ways to make him useful. The peddler taught the boy to play cards and gamble. When they got to logging camps, they ran this scamp enterprise. The peddler would start a game, the boy would then ask to play, and the loggers could not take him seriously, but would let him join since he was gambling with the peddler's stake. The peddler would lose a lot of money, and the loggers would bet a great deal, thinking him a chump. But the boy won every time, and nobody thought to accuse him of cheating. Afterwards, of course, the boy gave the peddler his winnings. In other ways, the peddler employed Robin to help him promote his trade. When hawking the cure in town streets, 
The peddler would call the boy out of the crowd where he stood coughing and shivering and ask him where his mother was. And he would say she was dead. And the peddler asked him how long he'd been so sick. And he would begin to cry. And so the peddler would summon him and wrap a blanket about him and feed him a dose of the cure. The boy would lie down on the porch at the back of the wagon where the peddler stood giving his pitch. And while he kept up his prattle, the boy would rub a little chicken blood on his cheeks and comb his hair and stand up announcing that he was feeling much better now and the peddler would give him a gold eagle, a coin worth five dollars, and tell him to go buy some clothes and get himself a good dinner and a room to rent to stay out of the cold. The boy would thank him with tears of gratitude and run off into the town. The crowd was so impressed with the pathetic boy's marked recovery and so moved by the peddler's generosity and kindness that invariably they bought out his entire stock, which then he had to replenish from his own recipe of water, some cheap whiskey, a dash of laudanum, and the oil of eucalyptus. By half it was water, but it had an effect like a blow to the head to stun a person and make the lips and gums feel numb. It made you feel a good glow, and arguably the eucalyptus relieved some symptoms of common maladies. Of course, when the peddler left town, Robin would be waiting for him outside the town, and there he gave back the gold eagle, and they went on to the next town for another enterprise. So with this one gold eagle, they could go on and on repeating the enterprise. This one gold eagle was the tool of many enterprises of the peddler, until the day that he lost it. It was the prize, for example, to the enterprise that the peddler called Catching Sky. In this enterprise, the peddler played upon the common excitement that certain summer nights caused among northern counties of the state when whole towns had seen lights over lakes, ovoid objects of stupendous size and bewildering luminance, slowly revolving, suspended in the sky, but not something astronomical like a comet in the ether of space, nor something atmospheric on the edge of that ether, where shimmering ribbons of northern lights dashed and danced, but something completely unknown right here and near the earth, like an angel might be, or some machine in midair, looking at us, and then incomprehensibly fleeing, to disappear in a streak with incredible speed to a distant point of intense light that suddenly popped. Because he was a traveling man, the peddler would be asked by the townspeople what he thought these things were. He told them how Johannes Kepler had proved by his Mysterium Cosmographicum that we had been deceived to think the sky was a ceiling and the stars little holes in it, that the Pope and his venal Italian conspirators had plotted this deception to keep us Catholic, that the stars and the planets moved, that the earth itself moved, how this same Kepler then bravely declared, though he was persecuted by them, that wished to suppress the truth, that there were people living on the moon. And the peddler also told the great American astronomer Percival Lawrence Lowell 
from his observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, had just recently seen with his own eyes that there is a vast living network of canals on Mars where evidently someone, but not anyone human, has built an enormous modern civilization. And whether made by God or freaks of nature, he could not guess. And although we don't know what these alien creatures may look like, we can be sure they don't look like us. These summer skylights were surely ships that these inhabitants, these Martians, must sail on the ether between our worlds. And they were come down here to look at us, and he did not know why they had come, but it worried him. The meaty references to Johannes Kepler and an American astronomer, along with the sauce of an anti-Catholic slur, always won him credence. And the detail of his knowledge and the logic of his argument were convincing because they were detailed and logical. Promising to investigate what they had seen, he would set out that night in a rowboat which he had borrowed, a kerosene lamp on a pole at the bow of it, to make soundings of the lake, so he said, while a crowd of the befuddled townsmen watched him. Why at night? someone would call. Because the ship is more in sympathy with its origin, he would reply as he rode out into the lake. And they would nod and wait for him to return. And when he came back to shore, one of them, having held his question for half an hour or more, still asked, meaning what by that? I can see it in the water, he would say. And while they pondered this, he'd pull the rowboat ashore, and at least one in the crowd would feel itchy to ask, See what? He would answer gravely, The one that crashed. He told them how he believed that one of these ships had crashed in this very lake, and that there was strange debris in the lake, pieces of the hull. And although water was like an acid to it and ate most of it up, some could still be seen, and there was some right there deep in the middle of the lake. The next day, he would tell a crowd of men that inevitably came to debate the matter in the general store, or the saloon, according to the tenor of the town, that he would give a gold eagle to the first man to get him a piece of that ship out of the lake. is how the enterprise would begin, and in every town to which the peddler and Robin took it, invariably it went like this. The men competed wildly to get the thing. 
The lake would crowd with canoes and boats like a fishing contest, and they would knock about each other, cursing and casting lines over top of each other, desperate to hook the thing which they could not see. He would let it go on like this for days, letting the frustration build and feeding it with tales of Mars and disappointing moments when someone brought up a skunk carcass or a snag out a group to tug till the line broke, until they were ready, in fact, to quit and began to doubt the peddler when a mere boy, Robin, who had laid back in camp till the time was ripe, would step out of the woods with a spear, a strange long spear, more like a whaling harpoon than the kind used for sturgeon in these lakes, and would be seen arguing with the peddler, who would relent with a shaking head and a derisive laugh, and who would row the boy out to the middle of the lake where the boy would take one hurl of his spear into the lake, thrust deep into the heart of it, and lo, always brought up a massive tangle of shining metallic cloth. It so shone with the reflected color of the sky, whatever color that it might be that day, that it resembled a piece of the skin of the sky. That is why the enterprise was called Catching Sky. But he told the stunned audiences that it was, in truth, a portion of the spaceship's own skin. On shore, they would all crowd around to see the skin unfurled and strange hieroglyphs written on places of it, the runes of the Martians. The peddler would give the boy the prize gold eagle. He would run off with his harpoon or spear or whatever it was, and then the peddler would reluctantly sell small pieces cut from the shiny alien fabric for grateful men who had so futilely fished or patiently watched for so many days. This enterprise he conducted several times each summer in the northern towns, far apart, they were not so far apart that they should not have discovered what he was doing, but they never did. And the peddler posited his fortunate credulity to the rectitudinous homily that hope is the heart in the body of belief. And to the fortuitous coincidence of so many lights in the sky during those summers. Once the lights did not come, he began another enterprise. For enterprises contingent on opportunity an opportunity contingent of chance, and chance, as he always said, is contingent on enterprise. You take them where you find them, he always said. The last time he tried this particular enterprise was on the occasion that he tried it in the town, on the shore of a lake round as the moon, and so was called Moon Lake. It was at Moon Lake that he lost his gold eagle, and that was the end of that. This is how it happened. Also be, as the peddler told his tale, that this place is called Moon Lake because when the moon is full, the town facing the moonrise, the glow of the whole moon, the whole face of it, is reflected on the lake like a big mirror, 
and fills it rim to shore. So it looks like there is a moon down here below, just like the one up above. I should have known by that bad omen that this was a bad place and the wrong time to do it. And I paid too little attention to my audience. Always a mistake for a traveling man. Because these folks were just as moon-faced as that lake and that full moon and looked to me like they got emptiness in their eyes when I spoke. I should have known. And I should have seen those girls. By God, I think I did see him on the edge of the crowd that first night. But I was too much into the Enterprise, as you might all understand. Only his friends, other traveling men, would hear the tale told this particular way, though Robin sometimes told the same tale for patrons at the Adonis. Insofar that the tales told had agreement, it was that the peddler worked his crowd as well as he ever did, but he was being met with cankering skepticism. And there were so few that took up the hope for that gold eagle that the peddler wondered if it would be worth the time it would take. Or perhaps he ought to just go on to the next town before the autumn fully set in. For the summer was gone, and the leaves were turning scarlet and gold around the lake, and raw breath showed frosty in the morning before the sun warmed up the air. The peddler got only a few rubes out on the boats. A few watched from shore. Mostly those that had any interest stood inside the town's post office and general store, keeping warm by the pot-bellied stove, drinking coffee and smoking, and watched the Enterprise from the windows. He could hardly work like this, the peddler complained, and his hands were cold most of the time, and rubbing them helped not much at all. Robin's tales embellished more upon the girls, telling how pretty they were, and how they were identical twins, that you could not tell them apart any more than you could tell apart two new pennies from the same mint. Even their mother could not tell them apart, he told his patrons, and called them both Amy, because they looked alike. She dressed them alike, braided their hair just alike, and used the same colored ribbons to tie their braids. And when one did something naughty, why, she'd switch the bare bums of both of them. And when one of them was good, girl, well, she'd give them both sweets. So the peddler told his friends at the table, the girls came to collude and conspire, together about everything they did, and were always seen together, always whispering together, playing with one another like a mirror to a mirror, delighting in the optical effect of mirror image and parallel gestures and identical looks. The townsfolk got used to it, but never trusted it. Strangers would stop to stare at it. So much did they act alike, even as they looked alike, that whenever they were together, and they were always together, they were always referred to as if they were just one person. And since they were both named Amy... It was easy to call them by just one name, as if they were just one person. Nobody ever tried to distinguish between them, so neither did the girls. Under the gaslight chandeliers of the Adonis, Robin would tell fondly, I was back at the camp like I was supposed to be, outside town by a pond that folks there call Little Moon, because it was round like Moon Lake but smaller, and it had a tiny island in the middle of it. I'd not ever met these girls, but they spied me from the woods around and decided to play a trick on me. 
One of them came into camp while I was roasting a varmint for lunch and took up talking and flirted with me, so I could hardly help myself from kissing her. I was just then a man-boy, if you catch me. The fruit of the loins was budding, if you catch me. Kissing was practically the liquor of God. Why, she kissed me back, and I was in love at once. But she ran off, and I was somewhat too ashamed to stand up and chase her, if you catch me. Well, then I had to go find her, of course, so even though it was the wrong thing to do to go to town and be seen before the Enterprise was ready for me, I headed off to find her there. I saw her then by the schoolhouse, swinging on a seat swing on ropes hung over the limb of a great oak tree, and showing me just a little of her bare legs as she went up on the legs off. It was enough to make me red as an Indian and twice as savage. So I went up and caught her, and called her Amy. But she slapped me, hard, made my cheek burn, and said, I don't know you. And I felt just like the minister who'd got himself dead and found himself staring at Satan. Amy ran off. And while I stood in wonder and ashamed, Amy came back and kissed me and ran off again. Of course, I did not know there were two. I thought instead she was of two minds, I myself felt split right down the middle. While Robin was looking for Amy, Amy went back to his camp and nosed around the gear and the goods. Robin found Amy in the bushes behind the schoolhouse and chased her, giggling around them, while Amy took money that she found and candy and came upon the harpoon and discovered its secret button. While Amy ran home with the money and the candy... Amy made Robin to pledge a secret to her if he wanted it to kiss her again. And so Robin told her about the Enterprise and the secret button on the harpoon. Amy kissed him and ran off home. Robin, again too ashamed to stand up, lost sight of her and went back to camp. He did not tell the peddler about what had happened, but the peddler told him the Enterprise was a damn waste of time and that the next day Robin should come into town with his harpoon and just bring the damn thing to an end and let them make the most of it. Robin then tells, Amy came back to the camp the next day and teasing me and dancing away as I tried to take her hand and kiss her again, she lured me down to the little moon. Now it's not a deep pond and there's that little island right in the middle and you could wade right to it if you knew which side to get there by, but... A drop-off on the other side can drown a man. And as you know, I don't know how to swim, and standing in deep water to this day gives me no pleasure. But you see, she took off her clothes, and catching a glimpse of a naked girl for the first time in my life, even though she went into that water, was enough to get me to follow her, take off my clothes, and go into that water too. I suppose that if she'd not taken hold of me, I would have gone back, but that delicious warm little body of hers just drew me along helpless as limp rope, though it was not being limp that kept me going after her. And she got me right up to the island, and seeing her naked and laughing in the sunlight, I could not help myself, but went all the way after her. How, I do not know, because like I said, I don't know how to swim. And when I stood up out of the water, Amy laughed and dove back into the water and swam back to shore. While Amy lured me out to the island with her delicious nakedness, Amy had put on my clothes 
and stuffed her hair up in my cap and gotten the harpoon out of the wagon and gone off to town. And while Amy teased me running around the woods naked on the shore and laughing, Amy got in the rowboat on Moon Lake and went out to the middle to catch sky. With his arms folded across his chest, the peddler nodded as he remembered, Yes, sir. When I saw Robin come along with a harpoon, I was glad to get this over with, and though he didn't wrangle with me like he was supposed to, but went right to the boat and rowed himself out to the middle of the lake, I thought, well, good for him. Maybe he's got over his fear of water. And he knew what to do, and he did it, and straightway speared the thing, and dragged up the shiny skin of that ship, and came back to shore, and all the folk came out of the post office and general store, and I figured it might be a good day after all. Now, I should have known when I saw Robin get into the boat that he had more fanny on him than he should, and as I recall, looked a little pale. But I was just glad it was finally over and played my role straight, even when I saw him face to face and saw it was one of them goddamn girls. I gave her the gold eagle and set about to sell the skin of the sky she'd caught, but she took off Robin's hat and her hair fell out and I could see she was going to tell the whole story. And just then the other one came along out of the woods from the direction of our camp, and I knew I better hightail it. Robin said Amy and the townsfolk took up to chase the peddler on foot for several miles, and Amy led others back to the wagon where they found and took what goods and things they wanted, and thought themselves well justified by the cheat they had suffered. Robin said he stayed naked and shivering on the island till midnight when the peddler waited out to rescue him, and they broke camp in the dark and harnessed the team and got away. The peddler said, I saw them girls in the Zigfield Follies many years later. Robin said, Amy was a dancer. The peddler said, Amy was a singer. Robin said, and they were both as beautiful as two moons. <laughs>